Well, good morning, church. My name's Ethan Magnus, one of the ministers here, and I am so glad that you are here today. I am recovering from an amazing week. I got to be the speaker down in our middle school camp this week, and I just want to tell you, we have such an amazing student and family ministry team and such amazing middle schoolers. It was an incredible week, hundreds of kids. I was so happy uh, to be a part of it, uh, and part of the reason I was able to do that is because of the great uh, preaching crew we got around here. I'm grateful for Laurel and Donald and Elsa last week, and this week uh, we've got a guest who is joining us for our produce series, and I am so excited uh, to introduce him. Some of you will already know Josh Little, who is going to be giving the message today. Uh, Josh and his wife Becky were a part of this church. I first met them when they were interns of mine almost 15 years ago up in Maryland, uh, and I knew from the get-go that they were something special. Josh, even back then, in his late teens and early 20s, was a really effective, wise uh, church leader. You saw that here, where he was our middle school and high school pastor uh, before I came, uh, but for almost a decade. And then for the last seven years, he's been an executive minister at a church in Ohio called River Tree, a really exciting and innovative church. Uh, But Tennessee got him back um, this summer. We got him back, and we are so excited. He's back with us, worshiping here. But he's working over at Milligan, uh, directing what they call their ministry leadership program. Uh, Those of you who've been around to FCC for a while might recognize the sound of that name. That's the program that we sort of gave birth to uh, five years ago. I kind of think of it as our baby. Um, We partnered with Milligan and gave a substantial gift so that they could launch this new approach to training uh, ministers for the next generation. A lot of those have become our interns and are a part of our church, and we love them so much. So I'm so grateful that Josh is here today as we continue our series, Produce. Josh, come on up. Welcome, Josh, to the stage here. We're glad you're here. Here, Josh. And um, uh, Josh, I got to hear your message first hour. Thank you. It was incredible. I'm so grateful. You're going to love it. You're going to be blessed and uh, challenged by it. Uh, but before I set you loose here, I want to pray for you because uh, you're starting a new job that matters to us. We mm-hmm. care about the ministry leadership program. And so I want to pray just for that program and your work there. And we'll pray for the message today. Join me in prayer for Josh. God, I thank you for the good work of those who are investing in the next generation of the church, and especially for Josh and Becky as they've come back here, and Josh in this new role. Um, I just I pray, God, that you would bless this work and empower him, give him wisdom and leadership and vision as he pours in uh, to these students that they might be equipped to lead and serve your church. I pray now as he brings the message that we might be challenged and taught and instructed uh, by your spirit through your word as it is preached today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, Thanks, brother. Thank you. Hey, good morning, First Christian. Oh, it is so good to be back home. I got to tell you, uh, we love this church so much, and it's such a gift to be able to to be back. As Ethan shared, my name is Josh. I have the privilege of serving as the director of the ministry leadership program at Milligan. And this church is special to us. This is the place that we have made so many friends and been in ministry for nearly a decade. And it's the place where Becky and I, my wife and I served together and learned what it meant to be a married couple in ministry. And so I just want you to know, we love you all so much. This church is so special to us. This is a special place. And so if you are, maybe this is your first time to FCC or you're newer to First Christian, I just want to encourage you, you are in the right 
place. This is an amazing place to grow in your relationship with God and do so along aside other people. Uh, real quick, can we give it up for Ethan and Betsy Magnus? Uh, I tell you, I've been, it's been a lot of fun to be friends with Ethan and Betsy over the years. And I just appreciate them so much because I want you to know you have a godly, wise, compassionate couple leading your church. And one of the things that I've appreciated is the kind of tone that they've set here at First Christian. This church, FCC, is a church that raises up and sends out the next generation of leaders for the church. And I'll tell you why that's important is because the church, and I mean the big C church, not just like First Christian, but like the church in America and around the world, all sorts of ministries desperately need leaders, desperately need men and women who have this calling on their life and they use their gifts in incredible ways so that more and more people come to know Jesus. The church needs that. And through your partnership with Milligan and specifically the ministry leadership program, right now we have college graduates that are serving in Idaho and North Carolina and Indiana and Maryland, even the Dominican Republic and beyond. And I'll tell you, there are people coming to know Jesus and none of that would have been possible if it weren't for your partnership with Milligan. And so on behalf of Milligan, I just wanna say we are incredibly grateful for you. And we are so excited to see where the church is gonna be moving forward in this new season. Uh, over the summer, we've been in this series entitled Produce, and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. I love any time food can be mentioned in a sermon series, right? I just, I love food so much. Um, some of you are like, you don't need to tell us, we got it. Um, but uh, we've been in the series talking about how God wants to cultivate spiritual fruit in each and every one of our lives, in our marriages, in our families, workplaces, and in our world. And we've said that this fruit doesn't come about because we're trying to produce it or in our own strength. It comes about when we root ourselves in the faithfulness and the goodness of God. When we are reminded of God's provision and we go back time and time again of how God has been loving to us and patient with us, that is how we bear the spiritual fruit that God longs for us and the fruit that we long for our lives. And we get a picture of this fruit in Galatians 5. It says this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. I don't know about you, but I read that list and I go, man, this, this is amazing, right? Can you imagine if our world was marked by these things? Like if our world was more loving, like real, genuine, authentic love, wouldn't our world be better? What about more joy? Anybody here going to say that we don't need more joy in the world? Okay, if you're that one killjoy person, come find me after service. I'll give you a big hug, all right? Of course our world could use more joy. What about patience? Kindness. These are virtues of the Spirit of God that not just us, but our world desperately longs for and desperately needs. And as I read through this list, it kind of seems a little self-evident as you're going through, like, oh, I kind of know what that is. I kind of know what this is. All of them except for one. And it's this word, gentleness. Gentleness. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that word gentleness, I, I don't have a ton of positive ideas populate in my mind. When I hear the word, word gentleness, honestly, what comes to my mind is someone who's kind of weak, timid, passive. 
I mean, we might call them a, a pushover, a doormat. They're someone who's kind of feeble. But Jesus has this interesting take on gentleness. Take a look at what he says here in Matthew 5. He says, blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. You ever like been in a sermon or maybe you read your Bible and you, you see something that Jesus says and you're like, Jesus, are you sure about that? Like when I read this, I go, Jesus, are you sure that the gentle are going to inherit the earth? Because when I look at our world, I see a, a polarized, harsh, easily offended, aggressive world. And naturally, my thoughts don't go to, oh, yeah, the gentle are going to be the ones to get stuff done. They'll be the ones to inherit the earth. No, it's the, it's the strong-willed, the strong-handed, the aggressive, the assertive. They're the ones who will inherit the earth. I mean, so much of our culture tells us, right, that gentleness is the mark of a feeble person, a powerless person, a fragile person. Maybe that is why it's so rare in our world today. I was uh, in, in our backyard a while back, and I was on dad duty, and uh, I, I was uh, sitting uh, on our patio, and our two, we have two girls, Elsie, who's six, Avery, who's four. Go ahead and cue the Oz. I'll be honest, you guys weren't as good as first service. Let's try that again. Cue the Oz. Yes, okay, all right, you're catching on. So I was, uh, like a good dad, keeping a watchful eye on my kids while watching Sports Center on my phone. And um, as I was being a good dad, I heard this cry come from the back of our lot. And I could instantly tell that it was our daughter, Elsie, because if you've got little kids, you hear a cry, you know which child it is. I mean, it was like tears, snot, the whole nine. And so I ran over to Elsie and I, I knelt down and I said, honey, what's, what's wrong? And Elsie said, Avery, hit me. <laughs> now I'll tell you, in our house, we don't allow hitting. And so I, I walked over to Avery, who maybe weighs 15 pounds soaking wet, and I looked at her, I said, Avery, did you, did you hit Elsie? And she said, no, I didn't hit her. I punched her. <laughs> like, we are failing as parents, right? Like, the pastor's kids are the ones that get in trouble, right? But, you know, our world is just not a gentle world. Spend a few moments on social media and you will quickly realize that gentleness is in short supply. But the kind of gentleness that we see throughout the scriptures isn't powerlessness or, or weakness or timidity at all. No, see, biblical gentleness is strength under control. Rather than harshness, which we would say is strength out of control, gentleness is strength under control. It's the ability to care for people and situations with kindness and tenderness and being considerate in your actions and your speech. Gentleness requires restraint and care. I mean, showing your strength doesn't require any sort of discipline, right? Anybody can yell, anybody can scream, anybody can pull their phone out and type some angry tweet or some message on Facebook to make themselves look big, to, to puff themselves up, to put somebody in their place. Anybody can do that. But gentleness is a bit different. Gentleness recognizes that strength comes with the person who has the power to hurt but instead uses that power to help and heal and protect. 
Take, for example, an egg, right? I've never felt more powerful than holding an egg in my hand. You know what I'm talking about? Because in a moment's notice, you just crush it. Like all of a sudden, you, you feel like the strongest person in the world, but gentleness says, I'm going to adjust my strength to accommodate for the egg's fragility, its vulnerability. That's what gentleness is. Gentleness is strength under control. It doesn't mean that we don't speak the truth. It means that we speak the truth in love. It's speaking in a way that's in the best interest of the listener. It's being quick to apologize and recognizing the the power of our our tone, our our words, our actions. I got to tell you, nobody was better at this than Jesus. Jesus just had a knack for doing this well. Whether he was talking to a well-educated but hard-headed rabbi, a Samaritan woman standing at a well, or a tax collector who was publicly known as a swindler, Jesus had a way of speaking full truth and full love, of showing restraint and care. And the story that we're going to look at this morning is a story that's going to reinforce that. This story is probably my favorite story in the Bible. And I hope that you are as passionate and excited about it as I am. Because I love this story in that it starts to dismantle the ways that we easily view God and puts in its place a picture of Jesus that I just think can change the way that we live our lives. This story is found in John 8. So if you've got a, a Bible or you've got a Bible app on your phone, go ahead and turn there. We'll also have it on the screens. We're just going to jump in. John 8, verse 2 says this. At dawn, he, being Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. Teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who was caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teach her. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such women. Now, what do you say we should do? And John puts in this sentence here. He says, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So put this in your mind. Jesus is entering the temple area in Jerusalem and he starts to teach and people are eager to hear him teach because they've heard all of these stories of how powerful his teaching was. So they're crowding in, they're jamming in to hear his words and then working through the crowd, interrupting Christ's teaching, elbowing the listeners, comes this group of scribes and Pharisees who are dragging with them a woman. They make the woman stand right in front of the crowd, surrounded by all of these people, and with all of these eyes looking on, they say, what should we do, Jesus? This woman was caught in the act of adultery. What do you think we should do? She stands there, sullen for a bit. Every eye that circles her returns with disgust and and harshness and brands a scarlet letter on her. Every eye, that is, except for the eye of Jesus. From first glance, I read this story, and it's puzzling to me. It's so interesting to me. I thought it took two people to commit adultery, didn't you? That's at least how it works in Ohio, right? But, <laughs> but here's this woman, all by herself. 
And you kind of see as time goes on that this has nothing to do with whether or not they're trying to put the woman down or uphold the law. It's Jesus that they wanted. There was a growing frustration about this Jesus character, how he showed compassion on sinners. And so she was the bait and their question was the spring to a trap. Throughout his ministry, Jesus had shown all sorts of grace and compassion on sinners. How dare Jesus, right? Showing grace on people that don't deserve it. But throughout his ministry, he was showing grace to sinners, and yet the the law of Moses was uncompromising and impartial in its treatment towards them. So the religious leaders thought, if there's some way that we can wedge Jesus between his devotion to the law and his love of sinners, then we've got him. We can end his ministry in a moment's notice because he's either going to create all sorts of problems with the Romans for for allowing this woman to be punished to death, which wasn't allowed for the Romans, or he was going to undermine his credibility as a teacher by downplaying the law. And so they thought, we've got him, finally. It's so interesting to me, so interesting to me to what we see here I mean, imagine the pressure that was on Jesus' shoulders, all the the watchful crowd, all the eyes are fixated on him. This woman is standing here afraid, the gloating scribes and Pharisees. So what's he do? Verse six, you guys ready? Drum roll, please. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Talk about anticlimactic, right? All the eyes are looking on and Jesus just does what my kids do like when they're sitting down and they're just playing around in the dirt, just messing around. The religious leaders and scribes are disappointed. He doesn't even enter into the debate. He just simply stoops down to gather his thoughts and the silence is, is deafening, the drama intense with his finger. He, he writes in the sand and the, the necks of the religious start to crane so they could try to decipher what he was writing. The contents, we don't know, it's a mystery. Maybe it was a quote from Moses or maybe it was the, the name of the religious leaders there or something else, we don't know. Whatever it was did not satisfy the mob because we see that they keep persisting. They want a judgment on this woman, so they push and they push and they push and they're harsh and they push. And as all of these proud, haughty religious leaders tower over this vulnerable woman, Jesus kneels down. And he just meets her where she is. All the religious leaders are standing, rocks in hand, angry, frustrated, harsh, ready for judgment. And Jesus just meets this woman exactly where she is. And I love this because I've just seen, at least in my life, maybe you've seen it too, where Jesus just has a knack for doing that, right? He just stoops down to meet you where you're at. I know some of you here probably have this view of God as this, this angry, towering being who is just waiting to smite you at a moment's notice. But Jesus just flips that on its head and he goes, no, actually, the God that we worship and we praise stoops down to meet us in our sin and regret and failure, our struggles, our addiction, our brokenness. And that's what Jesus does here with this woman. Verse seven, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up 
And he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he just goes back to doodling, just stoops down and starts to write in the sand again. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones at first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. So Jesus stands up and all eyes are fixated on him in response to their persistence and aggression. Would, would Jesus incite his own righteous mob to stone the unrighteous mob? Would, would Jesus find some way to channel his powers, the son of God, to rain down fire on his opponents? Would Jesus pull up Twitter and do all sorts of mean tweets to put them in their place? No. What Jesus does is he just simply says a statement. Let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. There is no righteous mob. There's no fire from heaven, no mean tweets. There's not even a harshness in his voice. It's just this opportunity to reflect. And his words are disarming. One by one, the stones thud to the ground. And one by one, the the men start to leave. The oldest at first, possibly because they're the wisest, partly because they recognize their own sinfulness. But the older men leave and then the younger men leave. They come to the temple as this bloodthirsty mob ready for judgment, ready to stone this woman because they knew they were right. They even had the Bible verses to prove it. And yet when their harshness and aggression collided with Jesus' divine gentleness, guess, guess which one? Gentleness. Now they're alone, the woman and Jesus, the law breaker and the law giver. And only one is in the posture and place to condemn. Verse 10, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said, then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Has no one condemned you? Jesus asks, Timid's words stumble out of her lips. No one, sir, she waits a reply. She's expecting Jesus to, to concoct some sort of lecturing sermon of, of how she should live her life and how much shame she should feel, but that's not what happens. No, what happens are gentle words of grace, neither do I condemn you, and gentle words of truth, that her life of sin needs to be left in the past. And so she walks away, but before she leaves, she turns around to see Jesus sitting there praying to his father. And she turns away, grateful heart, leaving behind a life of sin. Don't you love that story? It doesn't feel like you love that story. <laughs> I love that story. Oh, and I love that story for a billion reasons. Two reasons I love that story is that it demonstrates the gentleness of Jesus with this woman. But right there with it, Jesus demonstrates his gentleness with a self-righteous mob. A prideful people who wanted judgment. In one story, one sentence, Jesus just flips everything on its head. You know, I think about our lives, there's all sorts of reasons why we give excuses as to why we can't 
be gentle with people. You know, one of the excuses I tell myself is that it, uh, it's hard for me to be gentle with people I don't agree with, right? Anybody here join me in that? None of you would be like that at all, right? This is the most Jesus-like church ever, right? You would never have a hard time being gentle with somebody you don't agree with, but, but just, I guess, indulge me, right? I look at my life uh, and I, I think, man, how many times do I get in disagreements or arguments? Let me ask you a question. This is participation, right? How many of you, raise your hand, how many of you have fought with somebody over something that's insignificant? Raise your hand. I can tell you we have some liars in this church, right? <laughs> tell you that. Every hand should go up right now. I look at me and Becky's marriage, and we have had some doozies. Our first week of marriage, we got back from our honeymoon. We were trying to make two lives one. And I remember we had this full-out fight because I had these drink coasters that I had in my bachelor pad for years. And Becky was like, yeah, no. Like, we're throwing those out. And I literally, in my head, was like, our marriage is done. Like, that was short, right? Like, over coasters. Who would know, Right. So we fought over that. We fought over dishes before. We fought over wet. Becky hates that. I, sometimes I'll just drop wet towels on the ground. Anybody here? Some of you are like getting ready to stone me, right? But um, we, we, one of the things that, and this tells you how wise of a person I am, um, after 10 years of marriage, um, when Becky and I are getting ready to go somewhere, um, you know, I, I might get ready a little early. And uh, as she's getting ready, I will stand out of the bathroom, the door frame, and just remind her of what time it is, Right? Some of you ladies are like, you're an idiot, right? You got, it's, a, it's a miracle you've been married as long as you have. I agree with you. From time to time, we, we argue with each other, right? Uh, couples argue, uh, friends argue, um, you argue with coworkers. We don't always agree on things. Sometimes we disagree about things that are trivial, right? Like coasters, and then there are times that we disagree about things that are substantive, that matter. But I want you to hear this, okay? How you disagree with somebody matters tremendously to Jesus. The way that you speak, your tone, your posture matters so much to Jesus. I mean, it, it, it's, it's amazing, right? Like we, we have these frustrations, arguments that come up and we're invited by Christ to respond to those with gentle grace and gentle truth. Take a look at this. Paul instructs Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.25. He says, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Even for the troublemakers, that are giving Timothy all sorts of hard time, Paul says, treat them gently. Why? Because words are powerful, so powerful. So when we're frustrated, when we feel misunderstood, do we speak gently with grace and gently with truth? Do we remember that every single person your eyes has ever locked eyes with is made in the image of God? And that just like an egg, they are fragile too. Do we remember that? Or, like an angry mob, do we lash out in frustration? Do we call names, raise our voice? Do we get historical? And what I mean by that is like, I remember in 1994, you did this. 1994 is a long time ago, right? 
do we give the silent treatment as a form of punishment? When we're frustrated, does the angry mob rise within us? When we feel misunderstood, do we lash out? Or do we speak in truth and speak in love? And I'll tell you, the same is true with the way that we engage online. All right, I'm just going to say something. Too often, Christians carry themselves with gentleness and kindness and goodness. And they'll come to church and everybody, how are you? I'm so good. Lord's blessed me, right? And then something happens when you tap a social media app on your phone and you turn to a completely different person, right? You ever seen that? I've seen, as a pastor, Christians have such a hard time where it's like a, a dichotomy in their life where they can live one way and then they get on social media and it almost feels like it just detaches from the humanness of it. And it's really easy for us to get mean-spirited and divisive, for, for us to, to easily get more interested in partisan politics than we are the unity and the work of Christ, to be crude, easily outraged. But hear this, everywhere you go, it doesn't matter if you, you leave here and you go to Zaxby's and you grab lunch and you go take a nap and everywhere else that you go the rest of the day and every day for the rest of your life, you are an ambassador for Jesus. You carry with you part of Christ everywhere that you go. And so we have to ask the question before we post, before we tweet, before we share, before we vent, are we doing so in a way that embodies Jesus's full grace and full truth. So sometimes it can be hard to be gentle with people that we disagree with. Sometimes it's hard to be gentle with people who've wronged us. Like I'm sure if you've lived enough life, somebody's wronged you, hurt you. Maybe they lied to you, betrayed you, said things to you, hurt you in some way. And I'll tell you, it's really hard when that pain is there to be gentle with somebody who's wronged you. It's easy for us to kind of feel like the idea of gentleness is far-fetched when Someone has, has hurt us. But if I'm being honest with you, and, and we should be honest because we're in church, right? When I look at my life and my relationships, my marriage, I think the biggest hurdle to being gentle is being rooted in the gentleness of Jesus. Continually reminding myself of the moments in my life where Jesus has met me with gentle grace and gentle truth. Like Jesus is the most understanding person ever. Now take a look at this scripture, Hebrews 4. It says, For we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every single way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. The writer of Hebrews then encourages, he says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. I love this. Jesus meets us with this tenderness, this, this grace when we approach him in our weakness and our failure and our, our mishaps, our sin. We approach the throne and we can have confidence because of who Jesus is and how he has shown throughout history that he has met us with gentle grace and gentle truth. I don't have to pull myself together. I don't have to have all the right things. I don't have to produce gentleness in and of myself. I just approach the throne of God as I am and remind myself of the times when Jesus has been gentle with me. I call back to moments 
tender moments, sometimes moments that I would rather not call back to, where the gentleness of Christ collided with my life. And it's so interesting when that happens, it's, it's almost like God supernaturally through the power of his spirit gives us the gentleness that we need for our marriage and our kids and our workplace and our church and our world. It's not something I'm making up or producing. It's something that God produces, cultivates when I am rooted in him and remind myself time and time again of the ways that God has been faithful to me. And here's the cool part. Because gentleness is so rare in our world, when someone sees it, they take notice. In our harsh and noisy and loud and combative and judgmental and polarized world that we live in, where it's so easy to find all the flaws and be so strong-willed and strong-handed, in that world, when someone sees gentleness, they see a glimpse of Christ in a world that desperately aches for God. I want you to close your eyes for a second. Go ahead, close your eyes for a second. I'm not going to throw anything at you, okay? First service thought I was going to throw something at them. I'm not going to throw anything at you. Close your eyes for a second. Here's what I want you to do. As you close your eyes, I want you, okay, I want you to bring yourself back to a moment in your life where Jesus was gentle with you. Maybe it was a moment like this woman where... In your sin, shame, regret, vulnerability, Jesus stooped down and met you. Maybe if you were honest, you'd say, there, there are moments in my marriage and my family with my kids and my work where I have been much like the religious leaders in the mob who stood and towered over with pride and self-righteousness and anger and Jesus met me there with full grace and full truth. Maybe you're here and you, you're not sure what you believe about Jesus. And this might be a moment, right, where God is reminding you, hey, I, I am here stooping down, meeting you in your sin, meeting you in your shame, meeting you in your doubt or your unbelief. And I am full of grace and I am full of truth. How did it feel when you were there? What was it like when Jesus gathered you in his arms and carried you in his chest and gently led you? Did you feel gratitude? Freedom, forgiveness, direction, power? Now, here's what I want you to imagine, okay? I want you to shift a gear. I want you to imagine that as you are rooted in the gentleness of God, right? Like that thought, that moment, that series of moments where Jesus has been gentle with you, that's on the forefront of your mind. Now, with that being the case, I want you to imagine what it's going to look like in your life. If the, the fruit of God's gentleness starts to burst up through the soil of your soul, you didn't make it, you didn't produce it. You are simply harvesting what God's spirit has made. What's one relationship that would look differently if that fruit cultivated your life? How would your marriage look differently if it was marked by gentleness? How would your relationship with your children or your grandchildren look differently if they didn't think there is harshness, there is judgment? No, I am met gently with full grace and full truth. What about a relationship with an estranged friend, family member, 
What about the people that you politically disagree with? How would that look differently if you were so in tune with the ways that Jesus has been gentle with you? Go ahead and open your eyes. My prayer this week has been more than anything that you would be reminded of the ways that Jesus has been so gentle with you. That that would not fall on deaf ears, that your heart would not be hardened to that. Yeah, I know that. I didn't ask if you knew it. Are you living it? That the gentleness of Christ is a mark on your life that when people see you, they go, man, I walk away full of grace and full of truth. I pray that we as the church would be so rooted in the gentleness of Christ that we would see marriages healed and relationships with kids and parents restored and we'd see people come to know Christ because this world desperately needs gentleness and it's gonna come to know gentleness through us, being rooted in the gentleness of Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who stoops down to meet us. I pray right now that you would remind us of those moments, that as we leave here, that that those moments of tenderness would be on the forefront of our mind and that our hearts would not be hardened to them. That as we are rooted in your gentleness, that we would start to see change in our life, in our church, and in our world. God, let us be image bearers of your gentleness to us. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.